Hello and welcome to another episode of Evolving Prisons with me, Kagan Carey. My guest today is Andy West. Andy teaches philosophy in prisons in England and his brother, uncle and father all serve time in prison. In this episode, we discuss how Andy's personal experiences have shaped his view of the criminal justice system, how philosophy can help prisoners with their personal growth and emotional well-being in prison. We talk about vulnerable prisoners, prison officers and Andy's inherited guilt about some of his family going to prison. I hope you enjoy this episode. Andy, thank you so much for joining me today. I became aware of you because of your book, The Life Inside, which is such an incredible book. And what I really loved about it was the fact that you were so open and honest about quite personal feelings and thoughts that were happening in your head. But what I really liked was the fact that you were able to take such a serious topic such as prison and have such a serious undertone, but actually make me laugh out loud at so many points. I thought it was very clever. So I wanted to have you on the podcast because you've got quite a unique perspective of having family in prison, but also working in prison. So can you start by telling us about how having family in prison and working in prison has shaped your experiences of the criminal justice system? Yeah, this is something I'm thinking about a lot, actually, because I I ran a philosophy class in a prison yesterday on the philosophy of revenge. And there was lots of different thoughts in the room and lots of different people with who'd had different histories, you know, either of taking revenge or taking revenge against someone, taking revenge or something like that. But I actually realized that my own morality on that is, well, I regard revenge as very human, you know, and sort of want to live as far away from it as I possibly can. And I wonder if that's just part of having grown up in a kind of people caught in a cycle of violence and part of that violence being, you know, the violence of of retribution, of, you know, imprisonment and the brutalizing effect of that and the way that the atmospheric conditions of prison and the culture, dehumanization and so on sort of makes violence more possible sometimes. So yeah, I think it's installed in me this drive to, I suppose, maybe humanize or have a a more human idea about who criminals are and what their history, context, personal, psychoanalytic, sociological context around all of that is. Yeah, that's very interesting because what you were saying there about revenge, I feel like in the UK, we definitely have, everybody has revenge inside them. I think human beings, their natural instinct is if something bad happens to them or their family, they want revenge. However, people tend not to act on it. But in the UK, I think we definitely have this culture of wanting revenge on people much more than some other cultures. Would you agree with that? I suppose it depends what culture we're comparing to. At the moment, there's a public mood for revenge, I think. You know, Lee Anderson's talking about the death penalty. Uh, Pratip Patel was talking about it before. There's a kind of vengeance subtext in Brexit and the discussion about people coming to the UK seeking asylum too, perhaps. Um I suppose when I look at America, uh, you know, where they're actively practicing the death penalty or I think revenge perhaps flourishes most in honor cultures a lot of the time where there there isn't a sense of justice that can come externally and people often have to take things into their own hands because they don't have hope of 
mediation, forgiveness, apologies, those things, they don't have hope of justice. So, you know, it's very much about protecting your own. And, and I guess the culture I grew up in, for my mother, certainly, you know, if she were to, where she grew up in East London, if, if she were to be seen talking to the police on her council estate, her neighbours would stop talking to her. So there was a kind of, it wasn't lawless, but it, there was a kind of implicit law there that did operate by a kind of revenge logic sometimes. One of the arguments I've heard for prison, and I don't think there are many good arguments for prison, and I think we should either reform or get rid of them altogether, try and build a world where we don't need them, but that it is prisons as regulated retribution so that the public have this revenge impulse, that ordinary people have the impulse towards revenge. And if we allowed the public to act on that, Punishment would be violent, disproportionate, unfair. I remember there was a, about 20 years ago, the News of the World published all the names and addresses of paedophiles. And famously, a paediatrician was attacked. Their house was graffitied or whatever. They weren't a paedophile, they were just a paediatrician. It's just what happens when that kind of group think takes over. So the argument is, what we can do with paedophiles, as I said, is put them in prison and regulate the kind of punishment dispassionately. Well, I think prison is most of the time better than vigilantism. There is, of course, many more alternatives in terms of what the public are capable of, what communities could be capable of, you know, treatment-based approaches, well, punishment-based approaches, etc. But it's interesting where prison sits as a form of revenge because it's it's the lesser of two evils. It's the lesser of two types of revenge, I think, but still not optimal. And I think we're still capable of so much more. Yeah, I completely agree. So tell us what your earliest memory of prison was. I suppose being five or six and visiting my brother in prison for just Christmas Eve. And one thing I write in the book is my mum told me that we weren't visiting my brother in a prison. We were He was at work or he was in the army or something like that. And, you know, yeah, I'm going through security and uh, there's lots of prison officers around and there's lots of visitors and opposite the visitors, there's lots of men in handcuffs or whatever. So it was, it was a, such an obvious untruth, but a very popular one. I still see posters today when I go into the visitor centre at prisons that's a picture of a child, you know, slightly troubled look in their face saying in a, a statement, is daddy working away again? Just this idea that you can't tell children that maybe a fear of passing on stigma, shame, the, the enormous confusion, I suppose. But, you know, it's a very, for a child to have a sibling or a parent away for a long period of time and not really have a true story about what that is and not be able to comprehend it is, you know, I hope as a society we, we can make a bit more room for the children of people in prison for a healthier conversation because the children haven't done anything wrong. There is a scheme at the moment that's coming out of Oxfordshire about supporting the children of prison prisoners a bit more. And I've met some of the people behind it and I think they're doing really positive work. Sadly, the way it's built to the public or the way it's rendered in the media, at least, is we're stopping the children of criminals becoming criminals themselves. So there's an, an implicit assumption, which is not really based on any evidence, that if your father's a criminal, you'll be a criminal. And, you know, to tell a five, six, seven-year-old child, that's your fate, but don't worry, you can 
step outside of it. I mean, it's a huge burden that just isn't necessary. You know, what, what is necessary is that child may be feeling very lonely. That child may not have lots of feelings they don't know how to express or don't have words for. They, they might be feeling, you know, ashamed, isolated, afraid. I think that's the, the most important thing. Yeah. So how did you end up teaching philosophy in prison? Was it something, obviously, as you say, you knew about prison from a very young age. Did you grow up knowing you wanted to work in that space or was it not an intentional move? Not really. I'd heard of a guy called Alan Smith who had a column in The Guardian about doing philosophy in prison. And I thought it was really great. And then just being a philosopher myself, I always sort of wanted to to work in prisons. I, I suppose there's something about prisons which are philosophical in a way you know um they're about time power freedom hope salvation all of these big philosophical themes and they are you know they were at least built as houses of reflection they're more like houses of survival in reality but that was the design principle and so yeah a phd student from king's college my great friend my cock said was starting a project in prison and kindly took me along and we worked together on it uh, about six years ago and I've been working in prisons uh, ever since. Wow. I love how many stories you you tell about philosophy in the book and I feel like some people can think that people in prison aren't intelligent and they are stigmatized. Whereas in the book, it's incredible to see how much they actually think and how deep they go when talking about the subjects that you bring up. So, it's clear from the book how it's helping people in prison. But for people who haven't read your book, how does philosophy in prison help prisoners with their rehabilitation, their emotional well-being, and their personal growth? I don't know about rehabilitation, just because I don't have any sort of, I can't make any big claims about that just because I don't have any sort of data on it. But we know that education has a really positive impact on all the things you've mentioned. Meaningful activities are one of the risk factors in violence and whether there's prison riots or not. I suppose for me, I think I just want to do philosophy with everyone, really. I think it's the sort of thing, it's just a really interesting way of approaching life. It gives you more possibilities for thoughts, more flexibility in your mind and your behavior, perhaps. And that's true of people, whether they're inside or outside of prison. So so there's a kind of instrumental value philosophy could have for someone in prison, you know, e.g. rehabilitation or surviving that setting. But there's also just a sort of more universal human value that it has in that I think everyone gets something from it, regardless of whether they're a prisoner or not, really. I love in the book how much you you go into detail about how prison is also changing people. So when they come into your class, some of them will be quite quiet to begin with and then open up. But I found it really sad when you'd mentioned that you'd go to the prison and you'd get the materials ready and then people wouldn't turn up because they'd been locked down for whatever reason. Was that really quite disheartening for you when the prison wasn't opened up for free flow because of short staffing or whatever other issues? Yeah, it really gets me down, actually. And it's one of those things I should have developed a kind of stoicism for by now, because it just happens. But you set up your classroom and then, you know, you wait and wait and then you hear that there won't be people being unlocked today. And I think it's um, it gets me down because I think it's a sample of the utter powerlessness that prisons make us feel. 
you're going to be unlocked at a certain time and then banged up again at another time. But maybe you won't. And maybe you will tomorrow, maybe you won't. And often what drives prisoners mad, I've noticed, is is not necessarily being bagged up all the time, but being told that they're going to be unlocked and they're not being unlocked. That's what really feels humiliating and erodes the sense of autonomy and things like that. You know, I know very strict prisons that are very well organized where even if they have a lot of bang up, it's scheduled and what they say is going to happen happens. And the emotional and psychological stress of that is a lot less than a prison where every day is a lottery in terms of whether you're going to get out of your cell, whether this activity is going to happen or not, whether your visit's going to happen, whether your canteen's going to arrive. And, you know, it it happens more and more because of staff shortages, because staff aren't trained properly, because they're, they burn out, they're, they're doing a really hard job. We're over a decade into austerity and, you know, the prison budget's got more and more strained. So, yeah, it, it really affects me, actually, and it speaks it speaks of a whole set of problems. I want to talk to you more about the, the prison officers. So they are, I'm really passionate about them. I'm passionate about the whole system transforming, but I am really drawn to prison officers and how they're trained and the job they do. And in your book, you mention a prison officer who wanted to make changes. He was very passionate about the job. And I believe that you really liked that he was in prison because you felt he was a great officer. But then he left because of the culture and because he wasn't able to make a difference. Are you able to share with us some of the challenges that this officer faced in prison? Yeah, I mean, it's I can't speak for him too much because, you know, I'm aware he's got his own experience and it's sort of coming through me. But lots of things, you know, I meet lots of really passionate officers who've come to the job who could just as easily be teachers or therapists or you know they've got that kind of humanitarian kind of nurturing there's a kind of conservatism that the older prison officers sometimes are interested in keeping status quo because it's worked for them for a number of decades sometimes there are older prison officers who could be very helpful actually but they've been laid off because of cuts it's easier to cut your higher paid staff and you know even though we have big ideas today about rehabilitation treatment-based approaches criminal justice lots of talk about mental health you're still trying to deliver those things in an institution that in a building that's 180 years old and was built for punishment and has tiny windows with bars on and you know has a whole history of violence in it so you're really up against it to try and change that part of the world. But he did have good relationships with people and was a real asset in that world. And mentioning, you've mentioned a lot of good points there, but just focusing on the prison itself, as you say, they are built for punishment, a lot of them, the Victorian prisons. And there's talk of prisoners waking up with cockroaches crawling over them and things just because the buildings are so old and... You mentioned in your book about sometimes it would be a beautiful blue sky outside and you'd go into prison and you'd be in a dark, dingy room, sun wasn't coming in. And just reading the book, that really got me down thinking, oh, that must be a really difficult experience. How was that for you? Because I'm thinking that, well, you're not in there all the time. So how is it for you? And then it's probably 10 times worse for the people living there. Yeah, I think um, for them, they're so 
bedded into surviving it that maybe it's less worse sometimes. I mean, each individual have their own experience, of course, but a phrase I hear a lot on the landing is um, keep your head and jump. People saying to each other, don't think about what's going on outside. Don't look out the window. Don't wonder. It's Saturday night. What are my friends doing? What are my family doing? Just focus on the here and now. Whereas, you know, I'm only in the institution for six or eight hours at a time. So my head can go out of jail quite often. One of the prisons I worked in is Pentonville, which is in King's Cross in central London. And coming out of there, there's a Waitrose supermarket and there's Central St. Martin's College and there's a string of really swish restaurants and there's these fountains and the canal and it all just feels so ostentatious by comparison that, you know, this, and that's just after seven hours in the prison. I can't imagine what it's like to spend seven months or a couple of years or a decade in prison and then come out into this just abundance that exists by comparison. Yeah, it must be very difficult. You know, there's so much people who are in prison, a lot of them come from poverty, very difficult upbringings to then come out and be faced with a waitrose. It's very polar opposite, never mind everything else that's in the area. And how about for, for prison officers? So obviously they live in there pretty much as well because they spend so much of their life in prison and then they come out back into the the real world, I guess. How do you think it is for them? Do you speak to a lot of officers and how they manage to combine those lives or make them very different so that they can survive in both? I've had conversations with prison officers who find I'm not a psychiatrist, but it sounds like PTSD. You know, it sounds like one of the symptoms of PTSD, as I understand it, is veterans who've been at war or whatever and seen, you know, these horrors is the sense that the reality they return to when they come home just isn't real. And just this this huge sense of disconnect that they feel to the present moment and the sense that, that the traumatic event is the sort of ultimate truth in some way. And, and prison officers who care very passionately about what they do and, you know, have had to cut down someone from hanging themselves in their cell or have seen awful wounds or just dirty protests, just states of mental and psychological darkness in people and, you know, come out and yeah, and then you're like in the supermarket and there's a hundred types of cereal and um, the world seems sort of cheerfully indifferent to that horror that it's just on the other side of the wall. It's it's not like coming back from a war zone, you know. It's it's not a ten hour flight. It's it's a matter of paces. We live paces away from this real horror. So I've met prison officers who, of course, because they work the night shift and they work on the landing, they work in security. Whereas I'm just in the classroom in the daylight hours. They've seen often a lot more than me, and I think it's a really hard job. My sister-in-law was a prison officer for twelve years, and I write about her in the book. She left the job after being very violently attacked by multiple men and it pushed her into really significant drug use. It was really damaging for her. Opioids, pain-numbing, escapist kind of drugs. So so I think there's a real human issue there with, with people who work in prison as to how do you carry it, how do you sustain it. 
it's not that difficult for me what I do compared to some other people who work in prison. But on a Sunday night, when I'm getting my bag ready for the morning, when I'm about to go into prison the following morning, I, I still have this thought of, can I do this? Have I lost my nerve? You know, if I've had a particularly nice weekend or something, it's like, oh God, this is, I'm going to have to bend my mind towards this other reality now. Yeah, I bet my partner used to be a police officer and he mentions what you what you talk about there with he's had to cut people down from killing themselves. He's had to go home to families and tell them your husband of 30, 40 years has just died and he's not coming back. And he said this was before I met him, but he, he said that to go from that to then go home to be moaned at for not doing the dishes before he went to work or something he just couldn't fathom it because he thought, well, you've no idea the trauma and horrific things that are happening in the world. And we're moaning about the weather or we're moaning about something so insignificant. And I'm in that camp where I can't even begin to imagine that trauma. You know, sometimes I'll be like, oh, why is it raining again? Whereas in his mind, stuff like that is so insignificant, understandably. But as you say, it's within us. It steps away from our homes. And a lot of us don't actually have a clue what's happening. So if you are a prison officer or a police officer or a paramedic, you probably do live in a different world than us. And it's it's very hard for them to come back into our world and navigate that because they can't do it in the same way as before they were opened to that kind of trauma. And how do you think then we change, this is a big question, a loaded question, but how do you think we change the training for prison officers to better enable them to do what they do? Because this is a question I think about a lot. You'd said earlier about how that prison officer you spoke to and some others could very much be a therapist or something as well. And a therapist has many years of training and so does a doctor or a nurse or a teacher. And I know it's different in England. They have different training than in Scotland. Um, But in Scotland, for example, they only have seven to nine weeks training. How does somebody who is tasked with such difficult jobs and seeing that trauma every day. How on earth do we prepare them for that job so that they can do it well, but also look after their own well-being? Yes, in terms of the job, making the job better training, I think, you know, all the things that therapists would have, you know, supervision, a better salary, you know, if you compare prison officer salaries to police officers' salaries and, and the possibilities of what they could earn, it's often not comparable. It's also quite a demonized job, which I don't think helps. I think if you treat people that way, they're going to act badly. You know, when we were in the pandemic, I think Pret offered free tea and coffee to key workers, nurses and people like that. Prison officers didn't come under that. And yet they were still going into to work every day. So, I mean, you know, I want to build a world where we don't need prisons rather than necessarily better enable the institutions of punishment that we have. But, you know, part of maybe doing that is creating a more humanitarian culture amongst prison officers. It's not that everyone who is in that job is a sort of baddie sadist, like you'll see in, you know, the Shawshank Redemption, or that they're necessarily on a power trip. Of course, you do meet those individuals who that role is convenient for them and their certain part of their psyche but it's it's often you know there's a lot of compassion fatigue precisely because people are so readily empathetic and kind that 
it drains them to be in that role where it seems everyone needs help and and there's just not enough of it around. Yeah. I'm interested to know what your thoughts would be. So I've often thought about prison abolition as well, and it would be amazing to not need them. What do you suppose we do with people who, for example, commit murder or rape? People who have done something so horrific that people are scared of them. What do you suppose we do with people like that if we completely abolish prisons? As I understand the abolitionists' claim, abolishing prisons is the final thing we want to do, right? We want to build a society where there's less crime, a less crimogenic society. So big factors leading to crime are things like income inequality. You know, if we can reduce that, then we can start to reduce crime. And where there is crime, we have a therapeutic intervention rather than a purely punitive one. But even then, there's something that the abolitionists call the dangerous few, who it seems are really at risk, regardless of any kind of social or psychological intervention that you can make. So sometimes I think abolitionism is better described as a kind of carceral minimalism. And part of that is that you you do keep dangerous people away, but you don't keep them in dehumanizing conditions. You wouldn't keep them in the, our current prisons. You'd keep them in conditions that still support their autonomy and growth, but they, they would still be separated. So I think that I think there's room for both. The fact is that most people in prison are not murderers and rapists. Most people are drug addicts and shoplifters, and you could cut the prison population significantly without the ordinary public being more in danger, I think, personally. Yeah, likewise. And I feel like actually the public would probably be more in danger if these people are in prison than if we never imprisoned them in the first place because these people are traumatized and they've had difficult upbringings sometimes and if they were in the community and we were helping them and we were helping transform their lives they would stop committing the crime I truly believe whereas putting them to prison we're just segregating them and then they're coming back into the community they have very little help and support to reintegrate and a lot of them, they feel comfortable in prison because they don't know how to operate it out in the world. So I do believe that sometimes we're actually making these people more dangerous by putting them to prison than if we never put them there at all. Yeah, I think so. An expensive way of making bad people worse, as, as the quote goes. Yeah, absolutely. So you talked there about people in prison and, and separating them and things. So I just want to touch on quickly, in the book, you mentioned about vulnerable prisoners being separated from the general population. And just for people who don't know that, can you just touch on why that is and also tell us how you felt that impacted both types of prisoners? Yeah, so a vulnerable prisoner is someone who is just at risk of mixing with the general prison population. So the first group you tend to think of is paedophiles, people who've committed some kind of sexual offence like rape. If they're on the landing, they they could be violently attacked. Other people are, if you're a police officer or a judge or, you know, someone who's unpopular in prison for that reason, you might not be able to mix. Or if you have a debt on the, the landing and main wing and your, your physical safety is in danger, then you might have to go onto the VP wing. Your question was about the differences in what it does, that separation. So we 
Yeah, yeah. So just exactly what you've said, just explaining who vulnerable prisoners are, but then also how it impacts them. So in your book, you mention about how vulnerable prisoners had to be released from their cell at different times. And also you mention about the general population banging on the window of the classroom when VP prisoners went past. Yeah. So there's this feeling of threat and menace, I think, between the two groups. It goes both ways. So if you look at it historically, sex offenders would share the wing with ordinary prisoners and often come to great harm. And prison officers were willing to look the other way, either because they were quite happy to see that happening or because it allows some of the the violence and the pent-up energy somewhere to go. But then they changed it so that if a sex offender is violently harmed on the landing, the person culpable for that is the on-duty prison officers. So then prison officers start to manage it differently and then you have different wings. Now, different wings overall, you know, are, are better for physical safety. However, you know, there are some prisons where those groups mix. I know that in, uh, I've heard red cases of Norwegian prisons where they mix. There's also HMP Grendon, a therapeutic prison where they mix. And actually the idea that there's two different types of prisoner serves a kind of, a sort of power dynamic that exists in prisons. My friend Yvonne Jukes, who's a professor of criminology at um, Bath, talks about the fratriarchy, that the prisons are these, you know, patriarchal institutions of real power, like top-down power. And therefore, power becomes really important throughout the whole population. And if you're at the bottom, you need someone to be below you. And the sex offender is that person. So it allows the sort of the disempowered to disempower someone, you know, the oppressed to oppress someone. Now, that's not to say that the crimes that, you know, if someone rapes a child, that's not to say they haven't done something that's viscerally obsessing and disgusting and immoral and just to help sort of see this as a power, as foremost a power dynamic rather than a moral issue i read billy moore's autobiography about his time in a tight in a prison in thailand and he said there he was sharing a cell with a pedophile and the pedophile could walk around the prison quite freely he wasn't seen to be a different type of prisoner yet when somebody who came to the prison who'd murdered their parents arrived that guy was seen to be very dishonorable he was a different type of prisoner and was violently attacked and i think probably killed in the end if i remember correctly so that image of the vp the sex offender as the lowest of the low that is a kind of placeholder that varies across culture and it can be quite arbitrary and i think it sort of speaks to the the need to to have a power dynamic in an institution that's so much about power. So it's really it's really morally and socially complex that one. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. Thank you for that. I didn't know that about Thailand, but it is interesting how they view it differently as to what the the most heinous of crimes are. Moving on a little bit to something that we've not spoken about, but I'm really interested in speaking about is how you feel about prison in terms of you mentioned in your book that you 
sometimes have this feeling that you've committed a crime and forgotten about it. And I wanted to talk to you about that because when I messaged you, I said that I have that too. And I don't know where it comes from. Not so much now, but for most of my life, I have had that fear where I would hear car doors going at night outside my house. And I'd all of a sudden panic that it was the police or something coming to my house. And I don't know where that's come from because, you know, I've never done anything wrong or anything that I would you know, have police involvement with. You were the first person I've heard of that also has this fear of committing a crime and forgetting about it. So do you know where yours has come from? And are you able to share a little bit about how you feel? Yeah, I mean, I I suppose in the book, I I talk of it as like a sort of feeling of inherited guilt that comes down from my father or family. That's just sort of what I'm fated for. And I tell the story of, you know, what it's like to live with that and to obtain some kind of liberation from that through my relationship with Kafka and his, the sort of guilt he's talking about in the trial, that kind of obscure, you've done something wrong. The content of that guilt doesn't really matter. What matters is the guilt and you sort of work backwards to to identify the crime. I think it's not uncommon. For me, there was a lot of shame around having family in prison and not a lot of conversation around it. So it does take on these quite mutated, convoluted forms in the mind. But yeah, I mean, it's a kind of OCD in a way. It's a kind of mental OCD that people have, whether they've burnt the house down or they've committed a crime or they've run over someone on the way home. And actually, it's just a pothole, this sense of hypervigilance. You've got an evil hand or something. You've got to make sure it doesn't do anything bad. It's interesting. And you talk about the shame and guilt, as you've just touched upon there, of having people and family in prison. Do you think people in your life looked at you growing up and expected you to go to prison? Or did you ever feel that people felt that of you? No, I don't think so. I think maybe they looked at me the other way as sort of someone who was supposed to break the cycle or something, the kind of the golden child or something. Yeah, which, which of course, is its own confinement in a way. but. Yeah, it was probably instrumental in in me not going to prison <laughs> as a prisoner anyway. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to put a link to your book in the show notes because your book is absolutely incredible and I'd highly recommend anybody to read it. What made you write the book? So what were you hoping for readers to get from it or was it a book just for yourself? I found that a lot of what I was reading about prisons was so front-loaded with a kind of ideology. So there's the kind of right-wing ideology that, you know, prison's full of villains and baddies and punishment's too soft these days and we need to be tougher. And that just doesn't seem... I mean, it's not true. You know, our prison population is growing. Punishments are getting longer. It's just an entirely ideological, not evidence-based way of understanding prisons. I suppose I also understood that on the left, there's a kind of an understanding of prisons which is fundamentally based in social justice and social injustice. And while I'm much more in that direction, I think maybe it didn't entirely help me to help explain the kind of experiences I'd had growing up. I mean, you know, I come from a working class family. There's a lot of social reasons why my family were the way they were, but I also think there's that complex an ambiguous place of 
social factors and agency coming together to create crime. And that's never an easy one to figure out. And so I suppose I felt like politically a bit homeless when it came to prison. And like I just had all these bags of just complexity, like moral and social complexity. And so I wanted to write a book that was gave that complexity to the reader in some shape. I didn't want to write a, this is a scene from prison and here's my interpretation of it and here's why this is good or this is why this is bad. I didn't want to lead the reader. I didn't want to tell them what to think. I didn't want to tell them they should feel outraged about this, that or the other. I sort of wanted to share the the enormous complexity of that issue in, in a way that wasn't just a total mess, you know, or a total shock to the reader's system, but that was structured using these perennial questions about hope, freedom, time, using philosophy as a kind of a way to structure all of that complexity. So yeah, I wanted to make people think because that's sort of something I've had to do. And yeah, sort of wanted some company, I suppose. <laughs> Amazing. Well, I'm glad you wrote it because it it's fantastic. It's one of my favourite books I've, I've read. So thank you for writing it. And a final question, what would you like to leave listeners with today from your experience, your personal experience of family in prison or working in prison, your life experiences? The sense I always had growing up and that I sort of realised had been a really defining belief for me when I was writing the book was, you know, my brother was in prison a dozen times. I've only ever been in prison with a keychain on my belt. We're brothers. We look the same. We move the same. We have similar inflections in our voice, yet we've had really different lives. And to me, that always left me with this sense of each of us could have been anybody else. There's a a radical kind of contingency to our existence. And I think when it comes to issues of criminal justice, we need to acknowledge that the, the people that we're punishing could have been us, you know. We're not that far away from each other. And the prison system, you know, in walling off a certain group within the population would make it seem like there is a radical difference and that we couldn't have been those people and that we can't be those people. And I I suppose what I want to do is challenge that and see what happens, see how we would need to rethink the justice system if, if that were the case. Amazing, Andy. I totally agree. I think anybody could go to prison, one wrong move, one different move in life, one different turn. The rules very easily could be switched and we could be the ones in prison and they could be the ones on the outside. So thank you for that. And thank you for taking the time to talk with me. It's been an absolute pleasure and I'm grateful that you came on the podcast. Great. Well, the pleasure has been all mine. Thank you. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. I had a short break from recording podcasts recently as I was in Italy at the World Happiness Summit with a business I co-own called Rise of Happiness. It's amazing how much prison intertwined with the subject of happiness and well-being, where speakers were discussing the importance of prison being a place of growth. I really love to hear from you, so please reach out to me if you have any feedback, questions or guest requests. Mm-hmm.